but all, and also so the thing is that it says that you can you can't really fool others you can only fool yourself and it's not so impressive to fool a fool <laughs> I like that one <laughs> if I remember correctly that was what the Rebbe Rashab told the previous Rebbe before his bar mitzvah important life lesson are you hinting at anything in particular? you can fool yourself it's a very serious crime to fool yourself okay all right. So, continuing on our wild escapade into the inner recesses of Kabbalah. Wow, that was an exciting section. Yeah. I mean, they're what? They took the bag? They're doing it. Or not. Maybe we're going to talk about furniture. That wasn't meant to be screamed. <laughs> you know. Okay. So. Quickly, to recap, we are in the middle of this note, this endless note. It's a note that's ain't so, it's without end. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't promise, but I will endeavor that we will not, we will, we will move out of this note soon. I got plenty of time. No, I'm, I'm hoping we finish it this week. Maybe even tomorrow. Maybe today. You never know. It depends how fast this goes. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so just to, to reorient ourselves, we spoke about how the godly soul is to God like a child is to the brain of the father. In what sense is the child like the brain of the father? That the essence of the father, right? what makes the father the kind of being that he is, resides specifically in the brain, it's housed in the brain. And it's that transfer of essence that is the father's contribution to the child. So if your father is a human being, then you are a human being. If your father is a goldfish, you are a goldfish. So if your father is God, then you are godly. Godly. Well, godly, right? So this gets to the issue of God being like a proper name of an actual specific being or the kind of thing that he is. Now that kind of all presupposes that God has a kind of a thing, right? He has a mahus, he has a defined essence, what makes him what he is. And even if that essence goes beyond our ability to really grasp it and understand it, but it is a definitive thing. The problem is that in Kabbalah, we say that God is not a definitive thing. God transcends the notion of being a something. Right? He transcends the notion of essence. Okay? And so Kabbalah, we have to explain, if that's the case, how can the godly soul be like the child of God if being the child means having the same essence if God transcends having an essence? That would be like saying that um, my tablecloth matches my Shabbos cover, my Shabbos Bechala cover, the same color, that would make sense because they both have a color, right? But it would be kind of ridiculous to say that the tablecloth has the same color as the number five. Right? Numbers don't have colors to them. Or grandparents. Or grandparents. Unless you have synesthesia. No, that's still, that is not correct. Even then, the numbers do not have colors to them. That is true. Most of us have, right, well, I mean, numbers also have symbol, symbolic representation to most people. It doesn't mean that the number itself has, is defined by the symbol. So the analogy that we used for that was light, like sunlight, it's colorless on the one hand, but when the sunlight passes through a piece of colored glass or plastic film, whatever the case might be, it takes on the color of that material, right? Assuming that it's translucent, right? Or a more profound analogy is that consciousness or subjective experience it isn't like anything in particular, 
But when it's expressed from the soul through the body, the body gives shape to it. So as it, as it passes through the brain, through the optic part of the brain, then consciousness forms into experience of seeing, through the auto part of the brain into experience of hearing, and through the knowing part of the brain becomes an experience of knowing. Okay? So just as the body gives shape to the experience of the soul, the, the glass gives color to the colorless light, so too there's these things called spheros, which we don't really know what they are, but they give some notion of defined being to, the un, to godliness, to the Ein Sof. So the Ein Sof would be like the light, the sphere would be like the colored glass, the Ein Sof would be like the raw consciousness, the sphere would be like the brain, the eyes, the ears, etc. Okay? And that was all well and good, right? Until the Arizal came along and just messed everything up, right? Because consciousness, although it's not a specific experience, it clearly can take on any experience, right? It has, right, it, it, it could become an exper a specific experience. The colorless light, it doesn't have a color, but it could be colored, right? But what the Arizal said is that the, the, is that the Ein Sof cannot be or allow anything else, right? And the, the notion of this is a little bit hard to understand is that what the Arizal says is that the Ein Sof is simple. What does simple mean? Not complex. Okay, so what does complex mean? Having parts. Relationships. Having parts, relationships. And so if the Ein Sof is so simple, it precludes complexity, the way that water precludes fire. Like if you have a big bathtub of water, you can't put a fire in the middle of the water. The simplicity of the Ein Sof precludes, doesn't allow for there to be any complexity. Yeah. This is like a big picture question. Yeah. Um, so the Arizal, Yes. Says this because of Ruach HaKodesh? Anytime a Kabbalah says anything, it's always Ruach HaKodesh. Okay. Which There's no way they... means it's like a message coming from God. Right. It's prophecy. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a minor so, form of prophecy. So what this made me think of, and like genuinely, like I'm trying to understand not to be disrespectful, yeah. but like if you knock on a door and someone on the inside goes, there's no one home, you immediately know that someone is home. Correct. So likewise, if you get prophecy, if someone relates to you, I have no way of relating to anything. Do not then know that there is something related to something. Do you get what I'm saying? I, I agree with you, which is why I told you at the end of last class that I'm giving you part of the story. And we're, okay. right? In other words, they, there's more to the story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we have this. So so what we have is this thing: is that the the simplicity of the Ein Sof, and again, by simplicity, I don't mean easy to understand. I mean it literally has no parts. Okay, and when I say no parts, like even the idea of one thing causing another thing, that's different parts. Okay. So reality, as we as reality is like things, like relationships, like like this is a dog and that's a tree, or. You know, this is the daddy dog, and this is the baby dog, and like whatever. Like the things, and they have relationships, and they're defined in terms of each other. And even if you make God the ultimate thing at the top of your, you know, grand metaphysical chart, you know, the uncaused cause, source of all being, blah, 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 that's still not simple. It's part of a system. Yeah. Can you, like, intellectually understand that the ain't so is... Like has nothing, like no parts. It depends what you mean by understand. 
in general, we have two ways of understanding things. We can understand things by drawing analogy, and we can understand things by drawing contrast. So if you sufficiently contrast your, so if you, if you, if you understand very well how everything you understand is complex, then implicitly you have some vague notion of there's on the other side of that chasm, non-complex, but you don't really know what it is. And that's like as best you can kind of get. But the problem is the more you try and figure out what that non-complex thing is, you start like, you're still getting complex. Yes. It just makes me think about when people tell you to think about nothing, like how it's like you can't really. Right. And so the Kabbalist would say is that you don't. So again, the Kabbalists, the Kabbalists are not saying that you, there's a difference between there's a, the Kabbalists wouldn't say you can think about this. You're thinking, but you're thinking, you're, 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 you can only think about what it's, you only think about it in contrast. Yeah. And then you just keep contrasting the contrast. And you're right, that doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to maybe say something that, that might be a little bit helpful. There is a common mistake where people try and understand things. And that's a general bad idea, trying to understand things. It goes, it goes nowhere very quickly. Do you want me to illustrate this? Yes. Okay. No. Okay, pick anything. Anything, I don't care what it is. A okay. calendar. God. Let's not do God. That's okay. The more benign and mundane, the better. How about how about the water bottle? Okay. 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 What's a water bottle? It's purple. Holds water. What's water? Life force. What's H? Hydrogen. Hydrogen. Or it's a two. two. What? What? Isn't it one? What is hydrogen? What is a hyd? Now I'm asking what is hydrogen? It's a molecule. What's a molecule? Well, actually, hydrogen is not a molecule, it's, so it's you're wrong. But it's an element. It's an element. Okay. Is hydrogen the same thing as helium? No. no. Are they both elements? Yes. So element is not what hydrogen is. Element is a category that hydrogen fits into. So I ask you again, what is hydrogen? It's a bunch of protons and neutrons. No, it's actually not. It's one proton. and one What's a proton? A positively charged particle. So is a positron. What's a proton? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a description of a, of a property that may or may not be intrinsic to protons, but doesn't tell me what a proton is. Do you see how this is going to go nowhere very quickly? Yes. Right, because anytime you really understand what something is, you all of a sudden realize that's just a word to stand in for the fact we don't want to talk about this too deeply. Now, let's change the conversation. What is the relationship of the water bottle to water? Is that it? It keeps it cold. Mm, it can dispense this it. One. It can dispense it. <laughs> in what purpose? It holds water and dispenses water in what larger context? To go into hand For drinking, <laughs> right? So do you notice once we Just stop hands. talking about... Well, that's this water bottle. Do you notice that I asked this different question? Instead of asking what it is, I asked what is its relationship to something else? Yeah. And that actually gets somewhere? Yeah. Okay. So what the... What? That... <laughs> I feel like we got somewhere before. You got somewhere before to the degree that you, you ignored that each word afterwards means something. Yeah, but it, it got down to the nitty gritty. Yeah, but what is a proton? 
It's a proton. So you don't know what a proton is, which means you don't know what hydrogen is, which means you don't know what water is, which means you don't know what a water bottle is. But that's just not true. You do know what a water bottle is. Wait, you can go that way. No, I'm not. So in other words, like this. In other words, like this. This is this is the point I'm getting at. When you take something and you keep isolating it on its own, trying to figure out what it is, that goes nowhere very quickly. But when you say, look, what it is on its own, I don't know. That that's a that, you know, let the philosophers waste their lives on that. But the thing, it exists in some context. It has, it's, you know, we, it, it's in relation to other things. And if I, can, I can relate, if I understand the way it relates to other things, and I take it for granted and the other things for granted, and I just want to understand its relationships, actually gets us a very concrete knowledge. It's actually how human knowledge works. And, and that's why, um, you know, to, to quote a famous physicist who was once asked, what is magnetism? You know what he said? It's the stuff that makes magnetic things attract and repel from each other. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, but notice that instead of what is magnetism itself, we're just like, no, no, no. There's certain kinds of things, and sometimes they attract, and sometimes they repel. So whatever it is that does that, that's the thing we're labeling as magnetism. Isn't that kind of like I don't finding get how that's problematic. That's the st- finding something in terms of the relationships it has with other things. In other words, we're defining things in terms of the relationships instead of trying to define things themselves. That's how it works. And if you, actually take, if you actually take definitions, you'll really see every definition really incorporates other ideas. So now, this is true just on regular generic mundane stuff. The problem is because we're all familiar with what we mean, we're not confused by this. The problem is let's say I, I'm comfortable navigating some notion in its relationships and you're not. Let's say, for instance, I'm teaching you um, a class about particle physics and I'm comfortable navigating the world of particle physics and you're not, right? And you ask me what a proton is. That's not gonna go anywhere very, very quickly, right? But if I say, oh, a proton's relationship with, um, with, with, uh, with a molecule is like little Lego pieces that you use to build like a little, you know, like a Lego car. Okay, well, is there something similar about the way little Lego pieces relate to like a thing that a kid builds and the protons that make up the molecules? And the answer is, yeah, there is, there is a similar relationship. Now, there's differences, but that gets you somewhere. This is, we build our understanding by drawing analogies, and really the proper analogies are not the analogies of the thing to the thing, but relationships to relationships. So, for instance, let's use an example. Let's say you never encountered, let's say a mundane thing, like a regular everyday thing. Let's say you never encountered a table. A table. And somebody else wanted to explain to you what a table was, how would they do that? They sit on what you know. So they would have to find something that is similar to a table in what respect? That it holds something? Right. They would find some concept of holding things, right? And if they want to be more specific, holding things that allows you to then use them, right? Because what do tables do? Now, are there going to be differences between that other thing that, yeah, okay. In fact, have anybody over here ever took, taken, uh, tried to explain how a computer works to their old grandparent, uncle, aunt, something? Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> how, how does that go? Why not? Because they just don't. Because they, they contradict it to something that they understand. Okay. Now, 
If you can figure out a way of explaining it in terms of things that they actually understand, then what happens? They, they get it. Then, oh, right? So it's like, when I put it in the, when I move it over here, it's like it's in the trash, and I can like dig it out of the trash if I wanted to. But then if I throw the trash in the dumpster, and the dumpster takes it away, it's like it's gone forever. <laughs> Maybe that's why they labeled that thing the trash bin. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Okay. But obviously, like, the way the physical trash works and what's happening in computer are very different, but there is a similar kind of relationship. So this is true when you're talking about things that are, are there, where the difference is only between a level of a person's familiarity with the physical world and the level of their intelligence and experience. All the more so is true if you're trying to explain things that are fundamentally you can't experience unless you're prophetic. The only way of talking about what they are is by analogies. So we don't know what anything is. All we are going to do is talk about A relates to B in a way that is analogous to the way something else relates to something else. Right? It's like those things in the SAT. It's like A is to right. be the same way oh. C is to That's be. right. And that, in fact, is the measure of... That's actually how people understand things. Okay? Um, the problem is we have this like hope at the end of the day that we get enough familiarity and we encounter the thing directly that eventually we stop thinking of it in terms of analogies consciously. But there's some things that you just can never do that. Like, you just have to deal with them through the analogies because you don't have any direct experience of the things themselves. In fact, this is an area where um, this is a thing where, where people in almost any advanced field have this problem is that the things that they're directly dealing with are not things they directly experience, whether that's particle physics or abstract principles of law. Like you don't walk down the street and bump into an abstract principle of law, do you? I'm so, <laughs> no, you don't. Wait, so what happens is what, even though they're not consciously aware of it, unconsciously they're linking those to fixed analogies that help ground them and understand them. Specific cases where those principles were, were, were manifest, etc. Yeah? If we're saying before that the ASOF is simple and like, the complexity, and the complexity is in itself like a relation, has relationships, right. then how can we even use analogy very good, very good. So that's what I want to pick up the class today. Okay? Okay. So what I want to do is I want to fill out the rest of the story. So, again, where we left off is that the Ein Sof, for lack of words right now, desires or wants that there should be a complex reality of which God is like the, the central cause of everything. But at the same time, the... The, the simplicity of his being precludes any kind of complex reality. And so he said, oh, so what he does is like, he gets out of the way, and then once he gets out of the way, then there can be the complex being. But that obviously needs some explanation. Mm-hmm. Yes? Just by saying reality, don't we imply it's complex? It's correct. But we don't really have to call it a complex reality. Right, I was just saying that for clarity's sake. Yes, you're right. Okay, now, here is the important thing. Um, there is a word paradox, which I despise, <laughs> um, because I believe it's one of those words that people use either to intentionally make what they're saying sound deep when it's not that deep, um, or it's a way of saying, I don't have to explain this because it's a paradox. There are certain things which are actually paradoxical in the sense that something necessitates its opposite, and then you're like, like the classic example is, you know, sentences are either true or false, like I am a cat, that is false. I'm a rabbi, that is true, okay? So you can like assign a label to every sentence, true or false, or you can say, I don't know. Like, okay, what about the sentence, this sentence is false? Okay, 
So this is a classic paradox because if you say the sentence is true, then the sentence is false. But if the sentence is false, then it is true. And if it's true, then it's false. And basically, it just means is that logic has breaking points. Okay, just like your sink, like if you put it under certain stress, it will fall off. Logic, if you do certain things in language, logic breaks. And that's what paradoxes are. They're really important if you believe that logic is the end all and be all of reality. And if you don't, you're like, okay, so logic is like everything else that has its breaking points and like stay away from the part where it breaks into these sharp edges and cuts people. Um, there were schools of philosophers in the ancient world who believed that logic was the end all and be all and they literally were disturbed and like had panic attacks because this sentence is false, like destroyed their entire worldview. But normal people were like, that's a quirk of language. It doesn't really affect our life. We'll move on. Okay, so that's like the formal use of paradoxes, okay? You can, you can break, you can break certain math, math, there was a thing, math called set theory, it was very beautiful. And someone said, well, set theory has a paradox, and then it broke, and I was like, okay, so we'll move on. It's just useful for breaking logic. If you ever wanna like, you know, like you have a piece of glass, and you like hammer it in the right place, and the whole thing shatters. Whenever someone builds a nice logical edifice, and everything fits together, and you can show that one part implies its opposite, then the whole thing shatters, that's all paradox is. What I want to talk about is something which is, which is different, which is the idea that perception of reality and reality are not always the same thing. And what I mean specifically is, is that sometimes perceiving one aspect of reality comes at the expense of being able to perceive another aspect of reality. That sounds deep, but it is not. If you can see my face, then you cannot see the back of my head. Is that because the back of my head and my face are opposites of each other? They're antagonistic to each other? They can't coexist? They seem to be doing just fine, right? Like the back of my head and my face are not like some sort of like metaphysical war for, of who gets to exist. Like they're both fine with each other. This, you have a problem, which is because you can only see something as it's projected to eventually. So you either see the, my face or the back of my head. You don't get to see both. You understand the problem? It's not a, like, yeah, okay. If you're looking at the inside of something, then you can't be seeing the outside of something, okay? There are other interesting things, like a lot of optical illusions work on this. You know the famous optical illusion where you have the two faces, the, oh, yeah. where there's a goblet in the middle? So this, this is the fact that one of the aspects of our perception, aside from the fact we only see things in planes and two dimensions, is we also only see things, we see things in terms of what's called negative space and positive space, foreground, background. And you can't help but doing that. Some people, when they look at these optical illusions, they see two faces. Some people see a goblet. Some people, their minds are really good and they can consciously choose what's the foreground, what's the background. But you know what nobody can do? See both simultaneously. Now, some people move back and forth very quickly. So it's like almost arbitrary and it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, right, that's not because there's any tension or conflict or anything paradoxical about the object. That's because of limits of perception. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, simple, simple argument for a second. If we take the notion that there's one God, which we should, because that's Judaism, yeah? <laughs> and the one God creates and sustains everything, yeah? Okay. Then the underlying being, the underlying substrate, the underlying thing that gives everything its metaphysical oomph, makes it be what it is, is ultimately the same thing. It's ultimately one God, right? Which means, is there anything that's really, truly incompatible with anything else? If it all comes from the same place, it's all generated from the same thing, 
generate from the same source, they're inherently compatible? Because, and this is important, is you actually don't have a good analogy of things gel generated from the same source. Pick any two things that you want to say generate from the same source. I'm just thinking like siblings can't... Right, but siblings don't actually generate from the same source, do they? For instance, yeah. what goes into the generation of siblings are the mother, the father, God, right? Okay. And things like position in the womb, even if you have twins, that can have an effect. And so if you take all the contributing factors of anything you encounter, right, the ones that you experience them, right, like even two things that seem to come from the same place, they're not really the things, they're cooperative efforts. There's the influence of the mother, the influence of the father, the influence of you know, God putting different souls in different people. And then there's like all sorts of things, like which, if you have, even if you have twins, which one's on the top and which one's on the bottom of the womb, which one's birth first, which one's birth second. Those can have effects. And so when we think of how we understand reality, we think of complex, many factors coming together to generate something. The idea of one thing generating many things is actually a really weird idea. But one of the corollaries to that idea Right. There's a reason why the pagans were pagans. Is they like the world is complex, so there have to be complex causes. Monotheism is a bit weird. Just a little. But one of the things is that if there's everything ultimately is everything ultimately only has one ultimate cause, then in some sense, the apparent conflicts and contradictions are somewhat superficial. There's an underlying level where everything arises from the same underlying source. So what we think is really incompatible is really just due to a certain level of perception. What does compatibility mean? Compatibility means would mean like this. Is the back of my head incompatible with the front of my head? Such that if one exists, the other can't exist. If one is doing well, the other one has to go away. No. Now, but what happens if I then talk about your ability to perceive the front and back of my head? There is an incompatibility there that the act of perceiving the front of my head comes at the expense of perceiving the back the of my head. The ability of both things to exist simultaneously. That's right. So there's, there are things that can't coexist in the realm of perception, perceived reality, that can perfectly coexist in the realm of real reality. And that an idea in monotheism is that if you take that everything ultimately is one cause, one made of one underlying, just lack of words, stuff, then at the end of the day, what appears to be in different things is simply because you can't perceive how they all coexist. Okay, yeah? In the case of identical twins, because you previously said that the soul is put into the embryo like at the moment that it's conceived, so are two souls put into one embryo before it's that is my gut instinct, but I've never seen it in any, any sources, and because I don't have access to prophecy, I can't tell you for sure. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. All right. So now, so, so there is also this other thing, and this, by the way, is not, this other thing is not, like, it's not a new idea, it's just the results taking this. This idea that I said that really the conflicts between things is only apparent in how reality appears, but not fundamental. And the result says, well, okay, so... God is simple, we can all agree on that. The world is complex, we can all agree on that. So clearly simplicity, uh, complexity can arise from simplicity, right? Which apparently means, are simplicity and complexity really opposites? Or are they only opposites because of how we process our experiences, how we perceive reality? And so what the result basically says is that the difference between simple and complex is not a difference in reality, but a difference in how it's perceived going back to the simple things. 
no pun intended, my face and the back of my head, there's no paradox there. There's just a problem that you can't see one at the same time you're seeing the other, right? And if you didn't have the ability of abstract thought and three-dimensional processing in your visual cortex, you would come to the conclusion that the front of my head and the back of my head are actually two totally separate things. Because they look different, right? But because you can process three dimensions and you have abstract thought, you can come to understand that that's not the case. That's right. That's right. Which now means, and the reason I'll say like this, the fact that you look at reality and say that's complex, you look at God and say that's simple, simplicity and complexity, they can't coexist. Is that because they can't coexist or because your mind can't process how they coexist? Like we haven't developed some sort of object permanence that would allow us to understand. Or to put it more, we haven't developed a sense of God permanence. There's a sense of God permanence. That God is no more simple than he is complex. Complexity is simple. These are just two different perspectives on God. And so, yes, we are incapable of perceiving both simultaneously. But that doesn't mean God isn't both because right, this idea of if, if complexity arises from simple God, then really there's not a, there is no paradox there. It's, not, it's a paradox you can't understand. It's just... It's basically a more profound version of the fact that you can see the front of something, you can see the back of something, but you can't see the front and the back at the same time. Which means, if you're shown the front and you're like, but I can't see the back, and someone turns it around and shows you the back, now what do you complain about? But did anything really change? In the, in the object, no, but in your perception of it? Yes. Okay, and if you f ha don't have object permanence, then you get really confused what just happened, right? But if you do that, you like understand, just flipped around. Okay? So, the, for lack of words, yeah, <laughs> you can look at God in one way, and he is so absolutely simple, there can be no complexity, and God can be perceived another way, and God can give rise to complexity. Now, that's a little bit hard to understand, so fortunately we have an analogy for this. Okay, <laughs> where we have the exact same thing producing two completely opposite results depending on your orientation to it. Okay, so the analogy is going to be, you'll notice that the Kabbalists love this analogy, light. You notice we keep using light? Okay, the sunlight. So now, here's the thing. Can we all agree that being blinded and being able to see are like opposites? Being blinded, or yeah. If something, or if something, if something. So, for instance, for, let's start something simple. Being being able to see and being blind, those are opposite. Yeah, yeah. They can't like you can't be blind now. Okay. So if something, if something blinds you, it is doing the opposite of something that is enabling you to see. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something that is making vision possible is doing the opposite of something that make that is blinding. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now, does the sunlight enable vision, or does the sunlight destroy vision? Both. But that's right. If you look directly at the sun, it blinds you. But if you don't look directly at the sun, rather you look how the sun shines on something else, then it illuminates. So the very same sunlight both blinds and illuminates depending on your orientation to it. If the sun is way up there and the sunlight is shining on the street, then the sunlight illuminates. On the other hand, and I don't recommend doing this in real life, if you gaze directly at the sun, that very same sunlight does what? Blinds and doesn't just blind in the moment, it can actually blind permanently. Right? So, is that because the sunlight is a paradox? 
or no, it's not because the sunlight is a paradox. It's because the way the sunlight affects you depends on your orientation to it. If you're looking at the sunlight as it comes off the sun, shining on something else, is a totally different perspective on the sunlight than the sunlight as it's emanating directly out of the sun towards your eye. That make sense? Okay. So, for lack of words, what happens if you gaze directly at God? God's, the simplicity of God precludes reality. What happens if God's simple being reflects off something, is, is, is seen in a, in a sort of indirect manner? Then instead of precluding complex reality, it actually Great. can be the source of complex reality. But Just that, like the sunlight. Is that seeing God? So that's the question. Is seeing, so that's your question. If you go outside, yeah, on a bright day in the afternoon, right? And you go out to the, and you see the sunlight. And you're not looking at directly at the sun. Do you see the sunlight? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, yes and no. And I'll explain to you why yes and no. There is definitely a, there's definitely a sunny day. It's, like it's, it's different. You'd feel it's a sunny day. Even if you're not looking at the sun, right? The sunniness of the light is like there. But it's seen as it's reflected off the tree and the clouds and you know, all this other stuff, right? And so they kind of give shape and color to the sunniness of the sunlight, right? But if you were to look then and say, ooh, this is really good. I like this, you know, the, 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 the feel of a sunny day. Let me look directly at the source of the sunniness of the sunny day. That's a bad idea because then what happens? Can't see then you can't see anything. Then you're like left in darkness for the rest of your existence, God forbid, and that would be bad, mm-hmm. right? So in a sense, it's like this. Sunlight... When, it, when the sun is, when sunlight as, it's in, as, as, as it comes directly off the sun, so you're really looking at the sun, blinds. Sunlight, when it comes off the sun, illuminates other things, but it doesn't just illuminate those other things, it also gives you an indirect sense of some of the nice qualities of the sun. Right? That's why sunlight makes us feel good. So it's like by giving like a shield, more or less, we're able to actually get the benefits of it. Right. And so what the Rizal says, yeah, this idea that we think of God as being defined as simple or complex. And there's a, like, this, is, this is the problems of, of, of created beings' inability to perceive the total reality of God. So if God wants there to be a complex reality, what does God do? Instead of, instead of it being like gate, instead of God just being there and everything just be like, like the sunlight coming directly off God, a direct sense of God... God is in some sense hidden, not present, and then the light is kind of shining off. The, the analogy that's specifically used for this, to make it like more, because in Kabbalah they use like simple direct analogies, is dawn, right before sunrise. Dawn right before sunrise. And dawn right before, can you see the sunlight? Can you see the sun? So here's the thing. If you can see the sunlight without the sun, you get all the benefits of the sunlight without... For our, from our perspective, the, 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 the so-called destructive elements. So what the Rizal speaks about is how God, by hiding himself or making himself invisible and then revealing himself in a kind of an indirect manner, brings about the reality that, that the regular Kabbalists speak about, about how a light that can then be seen through different vessels, through different lenses. But he used to reveal himself in more direct what? In the times of the temple. No, but those are all still indirect. Because if it was, du- it was direct, go back to the example of the sun. If you have a du- gaze directly at the sun, what happens to your ability to see? If there would be a direct revelation of God's being, 
then the simplicity aspect of it would become what we would perceive, and that would really annihilate any notion of reality. So this is not because God is like paradoxical. This is just because we, we have this binary between complexity and simple. So if we encounter the absolute simplicity of God, there's, we, reality can't exist. Because reality is a problem. If, we, if, if, God is revealed, if God is revealed in reality, then his simplicity is not being, is not being seen, is not being perceived, is not being expressed directly, but in some sort of indirect manner. And what the Arizal analogy is that to is like, the sun is below the horizon, but the light is shining. Or if you want another example, the sun is behind you, and you're looking out at a wonderful field or valley or something, and you, it, you can, you, everyone knows what a sunny day feels like. Like even right now, I'm looking out the window and I can see the sunlight shining on the hill. It's, it's, it's a different experience than when it's cloudy and ugh. But I'm smart enough to realize I shouldn't walk outside and then say, this is so wonderful, let me just stare directly at the sun and see it in all its glory. That's a bad idea. That is a very good question, which is why, in the Arizal, there's more complicated and there are more steps. In other words... Like, where's the earth that... That's right. That's right. And therefore, it becomes much more involved. And this... And Al-Chassidus spends a lot of time elaborating this. I'm not going to do that here. Okay? What I'm doing is give you enough of the picture of what the Alter Rebbe is interested in. The Alter Rebbe wanted to say that we can say that... that the essence of God is given over to the godly soul, right? And so he says, even according to Arizal, who says that God precludes reality, God is so far beyond the idea of defined things that they can't even exist because God prevents their existence, it still works. If you're really interested, so you're going to have to learn Hebrew, and you're going to have to become a serious student of Lysidus, um, you see those brown books up on the top shelf on the right over there? Yeah. Okay. So, if no, the Rebbe Rishab. So, about books like that, but about two or three shelves worth of that of books go into explaining all of this in great detail. I'm not telling you that to intimidate. I'm just telling you that all of the well, if that's true, what about this? Those questions are asked and they're dealt with and they're answered like any serious field of study. But no one is going to do it in an hour. Even in this format, it's not really possible. You like have to take it very seriously. So. For our purposes, we would say like this, and actually I think because we have a lot of levels and ideas, I want to use the board to keep track of everything. Okay, can I have... Which one is worthwhelle? Well, these tiny okay, not the black one. Not what? the black one. You're saying the Rebbe Rashad? Oh, the Rebbe Rashad is the one who's most clear and thorough about this. Interesting, it's also his birthday. Oh, happy birthday. There is. There is. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. That simplicity is somehow preserved and shining through. Going back to, like, if you look outside and look at the sunlight, it's not just that I see the building, I also have a sense of some other more ephemeral quality. So that would be, so there is some sense of the simplicity of God, but it's more indirect. And therefore, that can coexist with the complexity. Is that direct, absolute simplicity is like looking directly at the sun. 
Okay. So you have God. Okay? And God is neither simple nor complex in our general notions of simple or complex because we define those as opposites and God is not one or the other. Okay. Now, if you... So now, initially what happens is that God is just overtly manifest. Okay? And so that we call that... Let would say that that is the light that comes off of God. And that would be like you have the sun, and you have the sunlight. Now, if that's your whole thing, and you're just like looking directly at that light, what's going to happen to you? Goodbye. You're going to go blind. If the, off of this light, this light brings out the simplicity of God, so absolutely there's no room for any complexity, right? Wait, that's what that light is? Not Think about this. If your eye is here and you look at the sunlight, what happens? If, the, if, if, if you try and put reality here, this, then what takes the simplicity of God and makes it so absolute, so powerful, so overt, there's no possibility for anything complex. Okay? So in real life, what do we do? Well, with the sun, right? Okay? Right? What we do is... We make a break, yeah, and then we just have the light on its own. What I mean is the light on its own. Like right now, look out, look out the window. You see the sunlight up there, but you see the sun. When you even walk outside, you see the sun. Why? Because you make an unconscious choice to avoid looking at up directly at the sun. Right? You just take the reality of the light without. The sun. And then what happens with that light? These lights are very different. The light that comes directly off the sun, what does it do? Blinds you. The light that's not coming directly off the sun, it's kind of coming past you and bouncing off objects, that illuminates objects, right? Mm -hmm. So this light blinds, and this light illuminates. Now, but is it really two different lights? Or is it just whether or not it's, you're experiencing it directly coming off the sun, or you're not experiencing it directly coming off the sun. Directly, I mean, looking directly at the sun. Right? Yeah. Are we assuming that the light that is coming off the sun, like, is the sun's essence? For argument's sake, you know, don't don't go too deeply into this making it about the sun. Okay. Okay. So then here, this light includes. Just like this light blinds you, the light that comes directly off of God. So if you're just like, there's God, and the light, the revelation of God as is, what would happen? So simple, nothing would exist. No complexity. But what happens if you say, no, 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 let's just reintroduce the light on its own. But what happens to that same light when you're not looking directly at the sun, but it's kind of coming past you or over the horizon or whatever it is, then that light, instead of blinds, it illuminates. So this light, instead of precluding complexity, is that because it's two different lights? 
Or is it because the light is seen in two different contexts or two different perspectives? The latter. How can we just draw that line, though? That is a big, that, that is a big discussion. This line is called sensum. It's a big discussion. I'm not explaining oh, it. That's ah, this is sensum. But there was a reason why I didn't use the word until now, because I wanted you to understand the idea. It's the same thing. Does this light, the light itself, treat the complexity, or is it symptom? Well, let me ask you a question. What is it that illuminates your? What is it that illuminates the, the, the world around you? Is it the light of the sun or the fact that the sun is not directly in front of your eyes? Which ones? Right, because when the sun is not directly in front of your eyes and it's nighttime, you also can't say anything, right? Yeah, you can. So all the all this line is doing is taking the sun out of the picture and seeing the light without the sun. Seeing God's light without it coming directly off of God sh changes how the light affects reality, but it's the same light, just like going back to the analogy of the sun. Okay, now once you have this light, can you then throw in what the what the remark says, how the light goes into the vessels and take, yeah, then you can do that. So basically like this. Everything that we learned in classical Kabbalah about how you have the simple light that goes into the vessels and is given shape is talking about which light? That light. This light. But not this light. But then the paradox, and it's not really a paradox, is that that's actually... Same light. Just like this light illuminates and this light blinds, but it's actually... The same light. The same light. The question is, are you looking at it directly as it comes from the sun? Or are you looking at it with the sun to your back, above you, or below the horizon? It has a totally different effect on reality. Adding to the chart. That's right. And therefore, the whole goal is we say like this Does, this, does the sunlight reveal qualities of the sun? Mm -hmm. Does this light reveal qualities of the sun? Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though it's really the same light. So, this is what the Alpha's whole point is. It's very nice that there's this big symptom and there's this big blocking of God and God has to hide, but really not, because at the end of the day, it's the same light. The light that the Arizal said had to be taken away because it precludes the complexity of reality. It's the very same light that creates the complexity of reality. The question is just the context in which it's seen. Which means, and if you go like that, light goes into the sphera. Okay? So I say that. Remember, we said the light goes into the sphera. That's what the Rambam was referring to as the essence of God. The defined characteristic of God. So it's really the same thing. God is revealed, but revealed in such a way, in a different context, so that that revelation, instead of precluding the complexity of reality, creates the complexity of reality, and that revelation is then given a specific form, which is known as the wisdom of God, the chacham of God, the essence of God, and then that sphere is, is then what? Kind of copied and duplicated, and your godly soul is a version of that. And so what I want to say is that all the complexities of Kabbalah and blah, blah, blah don't take away from the very simple fact that, it's not so simple, but the very simple fact that your godly soul is really, truly godly, even though it's just a copy of the sphere, because the sphere is just giving shape to the light, and the light is the same light, which is a direct revelation of God, so really all the same. So the essence of something doesn't have to be the starting point. In this use of the word essence, we're using essence in the sense of the defining qualities. There are, and usually when you'll hear the word essence used in translating chassidus, they're using it to translate a, a, the, the idea of true self. Right, in which case I would think that that, that would go up here. God. Right. right. But we're saying you need essence in the sense of something definitive that can be transferred. 
like the, like the essence of what makes a person a person is transferred from the father to the child. Not my my individual self is not transferred. Sorry, can you repeat the, how we're using essence? Definitely what makes sense. me a person I gave over to my children, yeah. but I but I am still me and they are still them. So there's a level of individual self. Yeah. But Bahajim creating that land, that symptom, is he taking away our option to land ourselves? Like, as in, we can sit in the room, but if we're only in a room, we're never going to have the option to get blinded by the sun. So we're never able to have that aspect of Hashem. Correct. That's nice of him. That is. And then now to answer your, your question about so. the thing. Well, once you realize, right. once, like, like, here's the thing. I don't even actually have to actually ever directly like this. How do I know that looking at the sun is, gonna, is going to blind me without trusting other people? Yeah. Okay, when but let's say I don't want to do it myself. When it gets put in front of you, and you're just like, That's well, I don't have to do that. I can just go very, very close to the edge, and I can start to see the trend, right? You ever done this? Yeah, like your I teacher say, don't look at the sun, and you like start trying to look at the sun. <laughs> you're like, woo. And what happens? Try it. You get close, and then you're like, no. Now, okay, I can see where this is going, right? <laughs> so, even though the light as we experience it exists in this little like container, right? With the sun. So what happens is the Kabbalist tries to like get more of the light, more directly, more directly. What does he start to notice? The complexity of reality starts to dissipate. So ways I see what's going to happen here. If I get rid of any sort of obstruction and I see the light as directly comes up from God, then what's going to happen? Right. In other words, you, we have the ability to perceive trends. So it doesn't mean that we're allowed to directly experience it. He can indirectly experience it. So if he directly experienced it, he'd be dead. No. He would never have existed. Because oh, past experience is also part of your reality. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that's not talked about. But he can never die. <laughs> that's right. That's what I mean. But, but you ask, how would he know that? And I'm saying like this. One of our abilities that we have as human beings is the ability to draw inference from our experience. So as he experiences, as he experiences the light more and more directly, even though never truly directly, what does he come to appreciate? That a direct encounter with the light, as it comes directly off of God, would result in no exist, no complexity, no reality. Has anyone reached out? No, nor is it desirable. Mm -hmm. That could be, would be a little bit paradoxical, and I mean that intentionally, like, like because the, how would you get yourself there? Right. Right. It's like it's like an asymptote, and there's no math. You get closer and closer, and you actually get there. You can get closer and closer, but you never actually would be able to get there. Did Moses do the one experience God? Like up here? No. No, no, no. Yeah, there's, there's parallels in lower. Yeah, there's no, no, nobody. So, like, pro prof prophecy is like coming here. Prophecy is actually always here. Prophecy is always over here. But let me give you an example, right? If all I have is my experience of sunlight, can I find a lot of stuff about about the sun, even though I never directly gaze at the sun? Because the light of the sun, as it interacts with other things, and through that I can come to know the sun and know, the, and from that I can have a sense of the light as some sort of as it's abstracted from what it's reflecting off of, and then I can have some sort of sense of what the right. So in a way that the way that you can build an awareness of reality indirectly. If the Kabbalist directly experiences the sphera, he's indirectly experiencing the light, he can then have some sense of what the light would be as it directly comes from God, which gives him some sort of really, really, really indirect sense 
of God himself. Okay? And if that's the case, and this is the key point, if all of that is then embedded in your godly soul, in some sense there's a little sense of God in your godly soul, because your godly soul is just a little copy of that. Yes? Uh, I was going to ask if the godly soul, when it's like not in our bodies, either before or after we're alive, could it reach that higher level of light? No. The godly soul would always be... So, let's just complete the analogy. Okay, if the light is shining on stuff, sunlight is shining on stuff, so I see the stuff, but I also have some sense of the sunlight, right? If I see that in an upper context, so I see sunlight bouncing off a wall, I see sunlight off the trees, I see sunlight off the water, at a certain point, I start to get a sense of the light itself, yeah? Mm -hmm. But I'm getting a sense of the light as it's illuminated. But then as I try to look more directly at the light, I start to get a sense of how the same light which illuminates, if you see it directly, would actually. Blind. And in that sense, I get some sense of the true power of. And all of that is somehow packaged in the light reflecting off stuff. No paradox involved, right? Okay. So if you have a sense of the sphera, you have a sense of this thing that is somehow conveying, for lack of words, godliness, but a godliness that creates complexity. But as you try and you have more of a direct sense of that godliness that creates complexity, you become aware that a direct sense of it would actually preclude complexity, which gives you some sense, all of it very indirectly, of God's true being. And therefore there is some sense of God packaged in and carried along with the sphera, and then if you are a copy of that sphera, then that means that somewhere buried within you is somehow a sense of God. Therefore, it is correct to say that your godly soul is literally a little piece of God. Not that we cut off a piece of God, but the light reveals God. This light is still revealing something about God, and the light as it shines through sphere is still revealing something about God, and then that's what you're, you're a copy of that, or your godly soul is. And so even though it's much more complex and much more involved and we can write books and books and blah, blah, blah and all the things, but at the end of the day, the bottom line is there is a sense of God in the sphere. There is a sense of the true power of the sun that comes off of how the sun illuminates things. Even though you have to have this jumping step that you can't actually experience the light as it comes directly off the sun because it will blind you. You can't experience the light of God as it comes off of God because its simplicity is so absolute. You have to have it as it's indirect. You wrote illuminates like you were writing a new deal with no vowels. I was yeah. also thinking about that. Um, uh, <laughs> I, no, I liked it. I like and A. I. And A, yeah. A. But I thought it was kind of fun. It was like yeah, okay. just well, English with no vowels. <laughs> yeah. Why would. With the sun part of this example, like why not just lessen the severity of the sun so you you're not blinded by the strength and like eliminated eliminated by it. That is a very good. Oh, so I will. So so so. That is. Those are very good questions. All I'm going to tell you is they are asked answered and several answers are given and <laughs> the answers are debated and the analogy of a welder's mask 
although not Lilith's mask itself is not used, but there is a point that is brought that if you have a sufficiently thick, translucent piece of glass, you should be able, in some sense, to look directly at the sunlight without it blinding you, right? That's when we had the solar eclipse, we had these glasses to be able to look Right. I will just, this one I will answer is that is actually an analogy used for a mitzvah. What? Is that a mitzvah messes with this whole thing because what a mitzvah actually allows you to do is look directly. It like breaks the barrier without breaking the barrier because it, it allows you to look directly at the sun but somehow minimizes that intensity. Why that works, Heather, I'm not getting into all of that. But, but these analogies are not just for what I'm using them for. They actually have a lot more nuance built into them. And in fact, one of the things that it says in... That actually, the sun was created with all of these characteristics in order to serve as an analogy to understand the relationship with God. Because God could have made the sun work differently. He didn't have to make it work this way. Well, also, like if in the same parallel, the way the sun is so powerful, the sun is so powerful because it needs to sustain an entire world per se. And like similarly, God has to be so powerful to. Sustain. Well, the opposite I guess direction. actually, so no, that's, yeah, not, that's right. exactly the point that Rizal is making. If right. God just created the sun to illuminate, he should have made it less powerful. Right? Look, I can, I can look at those. I'm not being blinded. Right? It's a little uncomfortable, but it's not blinding. The sun is truly blinded. Right? It doesn't have, if God created the sun to illuminate the earth, he didn't have to make it that bright. Because it, yeah, it has a lot yeah. of other purposes. One of the purposes is to serve as an analogy how the same light can both blind and illuminate depending on where you ha- how you experience it in relation to the sun. As an analogy, how God's light either precludes the complexity of reality or creates the complexity of reality depending on whether God is revealed or hidden. That's kind of tricky with God though because that a lot of people then worship the sun. That is true, which is discussed in the poem whenever you have a Kabbalah question. That's, that's a general Judaism question. Yeah. Kalman asks, why doesn't God destroy the sun if so many people worship it? You know the poem answers? God says he doesn't because it says God doesn't destroy his world because of fools. <laughs> this is a very That's important a lesson. Like, yeah. You want to be stupid and mess yourself up. That's your problem. God has a way he wants it to work, and people who take it seriously will work for them. And this is very important because people say, "Well, isn't that the, the, the analogy that the correlate is?" When people say, "Well, isn't that dangerous?" And the answer is, "Yes, it's dangerous. That's why you should be safe. You should be careful, yeah. right?" Isn't like God created a dangerous world? And if you play by the rules, it'll work out well. And if you mess around with it, you're going to get yourself hurt, you know, both physically or morally or, in this case, theologically. You know, don't, don't, don't relate to the sun the way God told you not to because you're going to mess yourself up theologically. But he's not going to me- change just for you. Yeah? Do we believe that the sun was created this way for us to have an analogy to understand him? Do you believe that? That's a personal question. No, but I'm saying that, that's how to believe. That is, that is what it says in well, yes. That, in fact... In fact, Kabbalah goes to say everything was created the way it was to serve as an analogy to understand God. So everything in the world? Literally everything. On the, on the level of human experience. In other words, we're talking about the way humans experience reality, not necessarily you know, the way reality works on some other level. So it may be the case. So for instance, the fact that human beings grow hair, analogy to understand God. How it is? I don't know. Can Human hair. Yeah, why do you think? And there's even different hairs. There's the hair, there's the head hair, there's the hair of men, there's the hair of men, there's the sideburns, there's all sorts of kinds of hair. Colors of hair, whether hair is curly, straight, all analogies for that. Let's not say plus. Yes? We can never know, we can never know the sun, we can never look at it fully. 
what you're saying, we can still see what is reflected on and like know things about that. How can we ever know if we don't see the sun? We can only assume it. So that is correct, which is why one of the key teachings of Kabbalah, which is actually borrowed, I mean, it's developed in Kabbalah, and then really, really elaborated on Chassidus, is the idea that you have God figured out is a logical impossibility. It's a nonsensical. All you can do is question whether you are moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. It's like, what I have a sense of in the sun, right? Even, you have to kind of break this down. Let me give you an example, okay? Not the sun, it's a little bit easier. Let's say I see a building from very far away, and I see the building, and I'm like, that's a, that building, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rectangular shape. It's a, you know. And as I get closer to the building, it turns out that it's not really a rectangle, it's more of a cylinder. It's like a circular tower. Was I wrong originally? Yeah. So the simple answer is I'm wrong, but if we think about it really, I wasn't wrong, because... Is it true that if you're far enough away, a circular building and a, and a rectangular building will appear the same? Yeah. Is it also true that most buildings are rectangular rather than circular? Mm-hmm. Okay. So therefore, what I was really saying, although I might not have been aware of it because I wasn't reflexive enough, and this is good, is what I was really saying is this building appears rectangular, which is true. If I was more self-aware, I would say, but that's all it is. It appears rectangular. In truth, it could be anything that, it, whether it is rectangular or not, is a separate question. Because there are many things that appear rectangular, but are not. Right? And so, but now, here's the thing. What happens if I get closer to the building, and it turns out that it's not like a, it, it turns out that, that there's no building there. Okay, well then I was delusional. Then, 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 then something went wrong. Right? You see what I'm saying? So what Kabbalah would say is, there's always two levels. There's your awareness of God, which is never, which, which is, you know, if you experience, you know, whatever you experience, then that, that awareness is, is correct. But then there are the, then there is the, um, the lack of self-awareness to realize that your, your, your conclusions are just how it appears and nothing more than that. And so what ends up, so that what therefore that means, and this is this an actual analogy that the Alter Rebbe once used, is that awareness of God is like the horizon. You can keep moving towards it, but you never get there. Which means, can you grow in awareness of God? Yeah, but you're always being aware of how God appears. And as you get closer, the appearance becomes more and more clear, but there's always an infinite gap between his appearance and what he fully, truly is. Isn't that exhausting? It is, which is why religion is an exhausting thing. That's why you can't do it as a hobby. <laughs> like, it either has to be like a full lifestyle commitment. It's like marriage or being a parent. It's like either you're full in or not, because like, you can't like, I'm on the side going to explore being aware of God and then on the side do something else. It's, you're going to run into problems. But that, that makes it seem like it's all or nothing. Um, yeah. Like, you know, any real <laughs> deep aspect of life. Now, this would be really unfortunate if God's way of knowing us was through pure reflection and, you know, spiritual experiences that required us to abstain from every other human activity. But for some wonderful reason, he decided that his way of knowing him is going to be embedded in regular human experiences, such as having children and raising a family and going to work and eating kugel and somehow that that all will help contribute. Right. But yeah, if, if it was all required some sort of monastic reflective life, that was the only tool in the toolbox to accomplish this, then yeah, it would be a really serious question. 
So, but yes, that's, that's actually um, a basic principle of Judaism is that while this, this idea is true about awareness of God, no one said that the only tool in Tobacks to grow in that awareness is, you know, some sort of reflective, you know, monastic meditative practice. It is one, in fact, the, 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 the in fact, it not only, it is not only, the, not only not the only one, it's even a secondary one. In other words, if, if, if it's your primary method, it's going to fail. Because you need other things to, it's like, it's like you're using an analogy from science. Like, you can be the greatest theoretician of all time, but if you don't do any experiments, you're just probably going to be wrong because you just don't know what you're trying to explain. So you need some, some, some direct data about the world. You need some direct encountering of God in order to actually get the process off the ground. Hence, you need God to be somehow embedded into your life. That's Torah, mitzvahs, etc., etc., etc. Then within that, there's some room for reflecting and stuff like that. But yeah, on the level of values, it's an absolute. Like you can't, like, I mean, think about it. Like you think about anything deep in life, like a marriage, raising children. If you're doing it as a hobby, it's not going to work very well. Yeah. So awareness of Hashem is only an awareness of how He appears to us. Then it's not what, like it's not the trueness or His existence. There's right. There's some, and this is what Chassidus often call His essence, His true essence, or His true being, or His true self can't be perceived. It has to be connected to in some other way. Yeah. Occasionally, it's alluded to whenever Hashem refers to himself in the first person. So like the beginning of the Ten Commandments where it says, I am, um, where Hashem says, I will, I will not bring the afflictions on you. Whenever it uses, whenever, whenever, strangely enough, it's like the third person narrator of the Torah starts speaking, that's, yeah, that's when that comes in. Yes? So if you're saying that no matter what you do, you're going to be like really far from God. Um, I said... N- no matter how much you perceive, there's always an infinite, there's always an infinitely more accurate perception. I think that's a better way of putting it. Because there are things you can do to be very close to God. It's just not perception. Okay. This is actually a very important point that Alter was going to get to in chapter 4. We'll get to there. Is that you can be very close to God. <laughs> it's just, just perception may not be the key way to do it. You just have to stay here for three more months. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. One um, chapter a month, basically. Okay. I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an analogy, I'll, I'll be, not to keep you waiting, but I'll tell you a story. Um, so the, the, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, on the middle, on the left, was sitting on his grandfather's lap, that was the Alter Rebbe, top left, and the Alter Rebbe said, where's Zaidi, where's the grandfather, meaning where am I? And so he pointed to his beard, because he says, well, no, that's Zaidi's beard. So then he's pointed to his eyebrows. So it was Zadie's eyebrows. He pointed to his nose. Then he just, every time he pointed to something, the says, that's Zadie's this, that's Zadie's that's not Zadie. Where's Zadie? And so the young Tanakh Zedek, who was probably four or five at this point, had enough of this game and got up and walked into the next room. And a few minutes later, there's a big crash and he screams, Zadie! And the altar comes running and he smiles and says, there's Zadie. Because if I scream your name and you come calling, that's you. Now notice that that's not a perception thing, right? Like, if I, what was the algebra trying to convey to him? When you're looking at me, what are you seeing? You're seeing some, in some way, like, you, my beard gives you a sense of me. Okay, but, but, but let's be honest. Like, looking at the beard is not like, it's not, it's not me, right? 
But then the Alter Rebbe's, the Tzemach Sadek's response to that was, okay, that's fine, but if I scream for you and you come running, that's you. And so there's ways of connecting that aren't perception and awareness and experience. There are other things. That's not saying perception and awareness are, are bad things. They're just only part of a picture. Like I said, they're even a secondary part of the picture. Right? We have a name for when you care more about perceiving someone than connecting to who they truly are. It's called objectifying them. Right? You just want to perceive them or look at them or observe them or have them appear a certain way, but you don't actually care about something, the, the, the actual inner them. And so this is, you know, what the Arizal is, is kind of implying and what Chassidus says outright is that perception of God is fine, but if that becomes your whole end goal, A, it's foolish and, 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 and on some moral level it's actually disturbing because you're not really connecting to God that way. There's always an infinite gap between how you perceive, how he appears and what he truly is. And no matter how much you, how accurate that how he appears is, it's only how he appears. And so you have to have some other more fundamental way of connecting, which is what the author is going to get to in chapter four. But for our purposes, even though we're talking about a very low level of godliness, nonetheless, it is still correct to say that there is a sense of God in the chachma, in the wisdom, in the and the, the know God as he knows himself on that level. And if that's where godly soul comes from, then it is truly godly, even though godly is much far beyond that. Yes, last question. So when we talk about how we experience God, are we just objectifying him? No. It's if you detach that from who God is to himself. It's like if I describe how I experience you, that's not objectifying. If I reduce you to how I experience you, then that's objectifying. Because then you're nothing other than the object of my experience. Is there a specific 